0: Well, it was a busy old day on your radio, this is Playback Daily I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed.
1: I grew up in a very small country town, Ryan, and we had a gas station and we had a farm, but but Dad also ran the local cinema for a time, you know, projecting and stuff. And you know what? When you see the people from country towns put their money down, Mm -hmm. come in on a Saturday night when it's been a tough week... You know what it means. You know what the responsibility is and I carry that with me always in every day I work.
2: People believe that they need to have the dress, they need to have the wigs, they need to have the same tan to even stand a chance of getting at one of the top
3: positions.
4: Listen, Joe, I know women who nearly pull the hair up one another's heads. I know mothers who haven't spoken for a lifetime. Terrible. And we'll
0: start with Tracy Corbett Lynch. Tracy was talking to Claire Byrne in the morning about coping with grief and loss after her brother Jason Corbett was killed in twenty fifteen in his home in North Carolina.
5: So this new book that you've written alongside the journalist Ralph Regal, it's like a roadmap about your grief and what you've learnt going through it all. And we've heard you talk about Jason's death, but people mightn't realise just how close you were to Jason's first wife, Mag's.
6: Yes, I um, I wrote the book with Ralph and I, I think there are questions we all ask ourselves when someone dies and and questions I'd ask myself and how do I get on with life at times when I can't recognise the life that I've been left with and death comes to us all. It's a really difficult subject. You know, when someone dies, it's almost always without warning. Your life just becomes a whole series of before and afters and loss and living is my roadmap. Um, The book and my guide to how I coped with death in my life, I'm not a psychiatrist or I'm not an academic, but I am someone who's had a whole lot of lived experience of death. So in the book, I talk about how it was for me, um, what I experienced, the things that helped me and the things that didn't. I've, I've lost so many people that... You know, I I love and I just when I thought I coped it all, life could throw at me. The COVID nineteen pandemic claimed my mother, so um it's you know it's it's not linear. You know, yeah, well, you've no. been and
5: people hearing that, you know, will, will be thinking what a difficult time you've been through. But I just want to come back to Mags for for a moment because she wasn't just your sister in law, was she? She was your closest friend. She was,
6: yeah, yeah. I mean, we were extremely close and socialised together both individually and obviously with the boys as well. And we were so young when she had died and it just threw me completely, you know, into a deep depression, really. I I couldn't understand how someone so young and so vivacious with so much to live for could die. It it just created a huge imbalance and Mm -hmm. struck me. It was really profound Mm -hmm. losing mags at
5: such a young age. She was only 31, wasn't she, when she died? She was.
6: And, you know, you, you look at it, you know, and, and it was so difficult for Jason. And at that time, I really, you know, you, you try to hide. I did, my own grief because I looked at what he was going through. And really, you know, I'd, you know, it would have been so much more helpful at that point in time for me to acknowledge my grief to Jason um, as well, because we try to, you know, be the strong one. Or, and really, it's about talking and sharing how you're feeling.
5: Because so many people were helping him at that time. You know, they saw someone trying to deal with losing the love of his life and also trying to raise two young children. But ultimately, as you describe in the book, he had to deal with that grief by himself. He had to go through it.
6: Yeah. Yeah, he did. I I think we all do. It's, you know, we we all have our very, you know, unique experience of when. We lose somebody in our lives and, you know, my life experience affects how I process and see the world the same as yours do does for you, Claire. you know, for example, how I experienced the world and felt when I lost my mother won't be the same as somebody else who lost their mother because they don't have the same unique experience and relationship that I had. So I'm sure your listeners will have their own very personal and unique relationships and no individual has the same experience and grief, but... We walk the same path and I hope sharing my experience would offer some support and hope for those at different stages.
0: So then Claire asked Tracy about hearing the news of Jason's
5: death. And then we moved to 2015 and and we all remember hearing that very tragic news, Tracy, about the killing of uh, Jason in North Carolina. And I can't imagine what it must have been like for you to hear that news. You describe it in the book. You were on holiday at the time in France.
6: Yeah, it was just, you know, we were on holidays and having a, you know, as as you do when you're away and sunshine and you break from work and all the stresses of life. And, you know, suddenly everything gets turned upside
5: down. And then you yourself and your husband ended up getting custody and, and welcoming Jason's children, Jack and Sarah, into your family. Did that add another pressure, another layer to your grief because you, you had a job now to comfort, support and, and bring those children up or did you find it was a help?
6: I think Jack and Sarah have just been a wonderful blessing to all of our lives and, you know, they're a wonderful reminder to us every day of Jason and Mags and everything that's good and, you know, about the world. So it was, it was a difficult time for everybody and you know, with children and grief, they express themselves so different. You know, to adults, and you know, we try to be as honest and an age-appropriate way. And you know, with children, it's it's listening, but it's watching as well. So, you know, we looking trying to support children while they're grieving, and and you know, and how they act out their behaviour, and offer outlets, and you know, talk therapy, equine therapy, art therapy, and we tried them all in fact, one thing I found very positive was a word a day um, that, you know, we found that the kids could have very complex emotions and difficulty in expressing themselves. So we did a word a day and took a word and the kids learned its meaning and incorporated it into some sentences. And that really helped them articulate their feelings and express, you know, how they were feeling, you know, and we're very lucky. We're very blessed with a four wonderful children you know and that's the strength that gets me out of bed every
5: day. Yeah and you mentioned um, the death of your of your poor mother two years ago now just over two years ago that was May 2020 so it was pretty much at the beginning of COVID was it?
6: It was yes um, I suppose anyone who's lost someone during COVID will identify just it's that emptiness and that unfilled hope to see them one last time and you know we witnessed the fear and loneliness and the isolation of a death during COVID and it's just almost a visceral experience you know that I'm sure people can relate to it's just the cruelest way there was no goodbyes for us I I just wanted to do the simplest act. for me was to hold mam's hand and offer her words of comfort and the woman who gave me life and you know like a physical touch to acknowledge that she loved and she was loved and that her life mattered but COVID wrapped so much you know, people of their parting and so many say goodbye to smartphones or Perspex. So I think just mentioning mom brings it to my heart and the truth is I'm still grieving. It's the purpose of this book. We're all suffering, but I think we can help each other.
5: Yeah, and I think there's so many people who are listening to this who will identify with that and also the ritual of the funeral and the ritual r- ritual of how we say goodbye in this country, which was so curtailed over that period of time.
6: Yeah, yeah, that that's difficult. You're so isolated, you know, and and it makes you know the the process of, of grieving and coming to terms, you know, all the more difficult. And Claire spoke
0: about the things that helped Tracy in the grieving process.
5: There is no magical way through grief and grieving. There is, you don't offer you know a, a one stop solution here. But can we talk about what did work for you?
6: Yeah, I am um, definitely, like for me, I learned that I'm much stronger than I give myself credit for. Um, I definitely found myself appreciating the value in a the moment. There were times, and those times I chose family over work, for example, I never regretted them. Those memories keep me connected and grounded and very lucky. and. Um and I, I would say anyone would identify with me that it's very much like soup for the soul and, on a practical level, there are things like meditation has been a lifesaver for me. I had practiced it, you know, in just a very general way, you know, for many years, and it's it gave me the space and and peace, I suppose, amid the chaos, you know, to take some time out for myself in bite sized pieces, be it you know, a minute or five minutes of a day when things were going awry all around me.
5: Mm-hmm. And I know that those positive practices and, and also looking after you, your nutrition, that's very important to you too. But you did seek professional help, didn't you? How did that work for you?
6: Absolutely. Well, um, it, it worked out I would have, encourage you know everyone talk therapy you know we're, we're big talkers in our family and have learned the value of it in, in sharing Um, but equally being able to talk to somebody outside you know your close network that's independent and a professional is, is huge hugely helpful and therapeutic you know and for me it was a catalyst to open that door you know, to be able to understand so much about myself and about my grief. Um, I think what's important is that it's it's not always the first time you try. Perhaps that, you know, that it might work. And, you know, I remember I came out one evening and it was very early on. You know, after I had lost someone that I had loved, and my husband was sitting outside in the car, Dave, and um, he came out and he said, "How did you get on?" And I said, "God, he's very nosy." You know, <laughs> um, and I just wasn't ready for it. Yeah. Um, and I think that that was okay, you know. And you know, I had, you know, I went back a, another time, and he agreed, and. You know, I took some time out and went back and, and there I had some um, professional help, you know, and it was the right time. um, And it, you know, and it set me on a, a course and a path to uh, being yeah.
5: able to help myself. And what you're doing here in the book, Tracy, is showing people that it is possible to find joy and happiness again. Is that what you want people to hold on to after reading this?
6: I do, because I know, like, I've walked that path and I know, like, there could be people out there in bed right now and not, you know, I haven't sent the kids off to school and, you know, I've got back into bed and under the covers and, and you just, you know, every single thing is a huge effort in the day. So I, I hope and my hope is that the book, you know, just shares my experience and that people, you know, perhaps can take something just to push them that little bit from that hopelessness into hope and see that there is a light there and, you know, we can live I fulfil life after losing those that we love. Tracy
0: Corbett-Lynch talking to Claire Byrne in the morning. And her book, Loss and What It Taught Me About Living, is out now. <music> and in the morning, director of Strictly Ballroom, Moulin Rouge, and most recently, Elvis. Ryan Tibberty's guest was filmmaker Baz Luhrmann.
7: It's very nice to talk to you, Baz. How are you keeping?
1: I'm pretty good. Like, uh, you know, I mean... Look, I'm good. I really am. Like funny thing, like by now you think the movie's kind of grown up and gone off to college and is having its own life like <laughs> a child, but it's not. And um so I'm partially sort of not yet in the debriefing period. Yeah. Funny thing is that the movie is still in the cinemas, even though it's on streaming and all of that. Yes. So it's still got a life going on, you know.
7: Baz, can I just say it is so important that I say thank you. Uh, as a movie guy, a fan, um, not a buff, just a fan, uh, but as a cinema, committed cinema goer in the yeah. face of the world of cinema being threatened by tiny yeah. little silly screens that do nothing for anyone ever at all. Mm-hmm. The, the the reason God created cinema was for people like you to make movies <laughs> for people like us who wanted to go into the dark
1: and turn off the phones and enjoy life with the big screen. Thank you. Uh, you said it better than I could have, but I feel it passionately and deeply. I set out to make a theatrical film for a theatrical experience. Mm. And you know what? Uh, You would have heard it. The naysaying that Mm. older audiences won't come out, that younger audiences have no interest in the subject. And I'm not crowing or anything. Like I just gave, I mean, myself, Austin, Tom, the whole cast Mm. and crew, we gave our all, but more importantly, or as importantly, once we had made the movie, I was just out there going, I went around the world four times in four months. And sometimes I did two countries a day. And it sounds fun, but actually after Cannes, it's just kind of like, it's quite a test. But I did it because the most important thing was to encourage, draw, like make something that compelled people to go. I'm like you, I truly believe that that it's part of the human condition to get into dark rooms mm. and commune with strangers mm. and laugh mm. and and be moved. That's how important it is. Yeah.
7: You you talk about the naysayers. I've 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 strong feelings about them, but I don't like giving them the oxygen. So let's march on and talk about the good people who buy a ticket <laughs> from their well-earned money and go into that yeah. cinema screen. Yeah, well, go on.
1: Yeah. Well, I I grew up in a very small country town, Ryan, right? and we had a gas station and we had a farm, but but Dad also ran the local cinema for mm. a time, you know, mm. projecting and stuff. And you know what? When you see the people from country towns put their money down, mm. come in on a Saturday night when it's been a tough week, mm. You know what it means. You know what the responsibility is. And I carry that with me always in every day I work, you know.
7: I'm not surprised to hear that because the commitment is is evident in in, in whatever it is that you do. I know I do a, I present a talk show here on a Friday night as well as a radio show, but one of the lessons I learned from an old mentor of mine, which I'm sure you learned from mentors of yours was, you've got to show up. You've got to be there because these are people watching you or watching your movies, in your case, much more importantly, who have had, as you say, a long week, who have worked hard yeah. to earn the the few quid to pay for that cinema ticket. And you've got to show up as a director uh, leading yeah. a cast. you've you've got to you've yeah. got to you've got to give the people what they've paid for,
1: yeah. I mean it's, to, to me it's everything like there's it's everything. Mm. like when when I set out to do it, the only selfish decision I made is, gee, I'd like to do that project because that would be an interesting, creative adventure. but, after that, every single decision is about how can I make sure that that audience is emotionally affected or laughs or cries or feels something and come out and go for a few brief hours. I entered into a world or a life or a story and I forgot myself and I feel better for it in one way or the other. You know, it's everything.
0: And Ryan asked Baz about the age group of the people going to see Elvis.
7: You talk about generations there a second ago, Baz. You said old people, you, people were wondering where older people come out. Um, and you could argue maybe the bigger struggle was with the younger audience because yeah. they're, they're, they're native to the phones, digital natives. And my point is we, as the media, often mm. underestimate the intelligence of people who consume what we do. And the fact is if the product's good enough, in this case Elvis, yeah. They will show. If you build it, they will come. And you have defied the odds. I'm not trying to plumoss you. I really mean this. You've defied the odds. You know, my daughters, who are young women now, went to see it separately, had a visceral reaction as I did, tears at the end that weren't expected. Mm. So it's crossing generations. It's crossing expectations. It's getting people back into the cinema. It's post-pandemic joy to remember one of the most extraordinary figures of the 20th century.
1: You You know what? I it you've put your finger on the thing that has made me, I don't know if it's gratifying, but made me so like I was walking in the street in New York the other day, a 25-year-old guy stops me and says, Cool shoes, man. Then he goes, Hang on, you're you're Elvis. I said, (laughs) Not Elvis. You did Elvis. I said, Yeah, I did do Elvis. And he goes, I took my mother, my grandmother, uh, my little sister, we saw it three times. Wow. And cross-generational. That's where you really get me there, Ryan, because You know, and you're right, like, if you go on um, TikTok and put in Elvis, the amount of, like, I mean, I don't know how old old your daughters are, but, like, I mean 14-, 15-year-olds who are dressing up as Colonel Tom Parker and doing the scenes, like, they actually can do the scenes (laughs) while they're driving a car or whatever, you know. I mean, so you're right, because the number one thing was, I mean, Elvis, at best, to that generation, was a butt of a joke or a Halloween costume or a fat guy in a white suit, Yes, you know. And what they've seen in the telling of this story is that in fact, he was the first and original musical rebel, you know, that becomes also the first ever teen idol on the giant scale because teenagers were invented at the same time as Elvis Presley was, you know?
7: (laughs) We, I'm trying to find points of, of interest that we might share. If we're, there's a few years between us. I'm touching 50, you're a few years ahead of me. And with that comes all the experience in life. I say that respectfully. But um, yeah. I was a member of the Irish Elvis Presley fan club 20 years ago. No ah. kidding. Yeah, I myself and a bunch of kind of, I hope they don't mind me saying it, but we're kind of misfits in school. I kind of got into Elvis right. in, a, in a very big way and still are mad about Elvis. So, so wow. I'm thinking about you and mm. your dad's cinema In the small Mm. town, which Ireland is full of, as you well know. And I'm thinking about those uh, matinees that you talk, the Elvis films you used to watch and so on. Elvis is in, gets into one's DNA. I mean, when you take out the casual, crude uh, mockery of it and actually give the the man a chance to breathe, you Mm. get to see something so much bigger. Almost. Yes. Uh, yes. I don't know. I don't, religious is is too strong. Spiritual is too strong. I don't want to overdo it, but there's something very special in that.
1: Well, moment. actually, can I tell you, you're not overdoing it with spiritual because look, I lived in Memphis over the many years I was working on mm-hmm. this and I came and went and I had an office in Graceland and I tracked down people that knew him. And if there's one thing that I discovered, people say, oh, what did you discover you didn't know is that he was so fundamentally a spiritual person. I mean, mm-hmm. The boy in that scene where he's in the Pentecostal tent, mm. I found the young boy who goes in after him as an 85-year-old man, and he passed last year, and he told me that story verbatim, right? Wow. wow. And you know, even at the end of his life, this is how spiritual he was, he could barely stand up, he'd do three shows a day, but he would get the sweet inspirations to stay up all night with him and sing gospel, and that's wow. when he was at peace. So he is a profoundly spiritual person, always looking and searching for, his restless spirit to land someplace. So I don't, And I think that that's what, what he, he we react to. Like, yeah, really good-looking, amazing on stage, incredible presence, unbelievable musician in terms of just what he can do with his voice, all of that. But also there's this inner quality that yeah. just we see ourselves through and it's spiritual.
0: And Baz spoke about Graceland and the Presley estate.
1: There were, two, there were many privileges I had in this movie, unusual privileges. One of them was that, you know, I I did meet, the Presley family don't actually control the estate, Mm -hmm. Um, but I did meet with Lisa Marie and Riley, who's wonderful young director and actor, and then Priscilla, and she was helpful. But then I got estranged because of the pandemic didn't see in a long time. Long story short, understandably, Priscilla was very concerned about what I was gonna do and how the hell would Austin Butler play Elvis. Anyway, long story short, she went and saw it, and in a flood of tears, I get a beautiful letter. She says, every breath, every move. If my husband was here, he'd say, hot damn, you are me, to Austin. Wow. But what happens is the family sort of come together, and I end up back in Graceland. This is kind of the happy end of the story, with the whole family having a barbecue, mm. and we're in the jungle room having cocktails, and they keep oh. it down the Playing on the on the billiard table in oh, the museum. Man. I mean, you know, Ryan, it's like the second most visited house in America. The first is the White House. Wow. So that's how many people go through it. It's yeah. it is, as you say, it's a, it's got a bit of religiosity, if that's yeah. a word. Yeah, for sure.
7: It. You know, I I was had the pleasure of interviewing Steve Bender um in July about yeah. the sixty day comeback, obviously, another extraordinary piece of television as it was, recreated. I thought Marvelously uh, in the film as well by everybody involved, and particularly capturing the the, the horror of 1968, the assassinations of Martin yeah. Luther King, and um, only up the road from, of course, in Memphis, and then uh, uh, Bobby Kennedy, and in- if I can dream, and again, it just showed you that the Elvis element uh, that was so important. His. Respect for African American music. I mean, one one strand of history will say, "Oh, he just robbed all the music off the African Americans and the blues and soul, whatever," and walked away. I suspect he was kind of caught up in the maelstrom of of that transition of, of music, and ultimately, he really respected where it came
1: from. I mean, I I, I uh, part of the reason I did it was not to defend Elvis, but just to do the re- research mm. and to really really find out. And along the way, I mean. Actually, forgetting that he was born in one of the white, uh, grew up in one of the few white houses in the black community at a certain period of his life. I found the boys that live with him. He was part of a gang of young African-American kids. Um, but then going along the road, I mean, Elvis is on record. You can hear him audibly saying, you know, I never invented it. I put my spin on it. I'll never be as good as, you know, Fats Domino or B.B. King, and B.B. and he were tight. They were great friends. Mm. At the end of the movie when he says, I'm not the king, I mean, Elvis never called himself the king, right? He said, Fats, come here. This is the real king of rock and roll. So it, it wasn't only – I mean, he did meld the black music, absolutely. No black music, no Elvis. But he also adapted country music into it and so on and so forth. But any of those black artists from the time, whether it's Stevie Wonder or – I mean – James Brown mm. has a song dedicated to my brother Elvis. You know, he was at, James Brown was at Elvis's funeral. Like the love of, uh, by the black musical community then for Elvis and the respect ran both ways. And the whole line in Chuck D's rap, mm. I mean, Chuck D himself said, Oh, well, I just made it up. You know, I just made it up the fall guy. I didn't have any evidence. You know, and that one, I, I actually had, um, two african-american academics really do the homework and there's just the, the whole thing about the racist line that elvis was supposed to say well elvis himself said to two african-american journalists in jet magazine i've never been to boston I, and if you know me it's not possible that i could have said anything remotely like that
7: uh, last question i suppose baz in some ways um Look at all the movies you've made and brought joy to us all over the years from Romeo and Juliet to Moulin Rouge to Gatsby and 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 we could go on. We could be here all day talking about that. And yet here I am talking to you for the first time and thank you. It's been a real ple- pleasure talking to you. Thanks, man. Um, And I'm struck that by the word I, I just wrote down as you were talking there because uh, you, you've been talking about this film a lot and yet here we are, our first chat, evangelical. You sound evangelical about the man the, and the movie. Why... Why this film? What what has got into your under your skin and into your soul?
1: You mean why did I do it? I mean, I I think that everybody who came on the road with me, there's two deserving factors here. I owe it from everyone to Austin and Tom and everyone who, despite COVID, gave so much to to make it. And then on top of that, I think I kind of owe it to Elvis. I remember when I saw Priscilla. First time before she got a bit worried about what I was doing, mm-hmm. I was at her house and I was walking out. And she said, I'm, I, I, she said, I've got a really good feeling. You know, she said, you know, I know you'll do everything you can because he really deserves it. And she was talking about Elvis, he really deserves it. And I think that's why I'm out there mm-hmm. still talking about it because I want to, he really deserves it. That's what I think.
0: Baz Lerman from the Ryan Tabardi show. And in the morning,
5: house prices and inflation on Today with Claire Byrne. First this morning, the state's economic think tank is warning today that house prices are overvalued by at least 7%. But the Economic and Social Research Institute has stopped short of predicting whether this would result in a market correction or a fall in prices. So will there be a crash and how does the property market cool when house price inflation is still at a runaway 13%. Well joining me now to discuss this is estate agent June Doran from Carlow and Rory Hearn, Assistant Professor of Social Policy at Maynooth University and author of the book "Gafs: Why No One Can Buy a House and What We Can Do About It and you're both welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Rory let's start with that question because you predicted that the next housing crash will hit harder than the last. Like if there's still an undersupply of homes and we're in a cost of living crisis, how do house prices cool?
8: Yeah, it's a it's an important question, and, and it's really difficult for people out there at the moment in terms of that cost of living crisis, um, and it's impacting in terms of their ability to save a deposit, um, in terms of showing capacity to the banks. There's a real issue here with the cost of living hitting their impact to get mortgages. Um, But on a wider level, the analysis by DSRI is really important because what it's showing is that essentially we're likely to see a fall in the construction of new homes in 2023. So they're saying that they're going to deliver 28,000 this year, 26,000 next year. But what's happening to house prices then in that context is that you're seeing essentially prices cooling because they um, point out that savings that had built up during COVID led to, was part of the factor in why prices rose significantly over the last year and a half. Um, And those savings are obviously been eaten up now by the cost of living crisis, so that's falling back. But the other, I think, very, very significant point in this uh, report is that they say one of the reasons for the overvaluation is the increased share of what they refer to as non-household purchasers in the market. And this includes, as I have spoken to you before, Claire, about investor funds, but it also includes the state to local authorities and housing associations. And the figure that the Department of Finance put on it for last year was that one in five of all homes bought last year were bought by non-households. So that was 11,600, half by investor funds and about half by housing associations and local authorities. And what this means is that in a context of people, ordinary people, being able being less able to buy a home because of the cost of living, that these investor funds and the state still has capacity to buy. And so if we look at, for example, there was that estate in Swords that the Business Post highlighted last weekend um, where investor funds were buying up individual homes um, and paying up to 800,000, up to 1.7 million in one instance um, for normal semi-Ds that should be going for 300,000, 400,000. So while you see essentially when we think back to the 2008 crash, we think that there was this huge amount of credit flowing into households, it was pumping up the house prices, but now we don't have that situation, there's not that credit going to households, people are even in a difficult situation to buy, but we do have an unlimited credit going to the likes of the institutional investors. And the state itself is buying up property. So that artificially, in a way, keeps house prices, could keep house prices up. But I don't see how there can't be a fall in house prices when people's capacity to buy um, a home is going to be further cut back in terms of the cost of living. Um, but they do make the point, the problem with this is that there, with this fall in supply, a further fall in supply, of course, will mean then there's less property to buy, which means that could maintain house prices. So we have this, it's a very different situation to 2008, but we are in a severe economic uncertainty. So it's very difficult to tell what will happen. Okay.
5: Also, that unlimited credit that you mentioned going to the institutional investors, that's not going to change and they're still going to be pursuing those units, despite what the economic outlook is like next year. Isn't that right? So that might be another factor in keeping those prices higher.
8: It, absolutely. I think that's a very significant factor that really isn't been given enough attention. And what the Department of Finance report that it produced in sept- um, just last month was that investor funds bought 2,000 houses last year, despite the stamp duty measures brought in by the government. And they bought, um, in total, almost 5,000 units. That's a lot of homes to be buying up. And they are competing. And people trying to buy a home will tell you and, um, you know, it's all over social media. They're talking about it. We were outbid by an investor fund, by, an, you know, a purchaser who wasn't a home buyer. So that is having an influence, a big influence on the market. Um, and I think as well, the wider issue for me is that this shows that the market can't be relied on to deliver homes. Like developers, we know, for example, in Leash, it was reported there's one development that's been paused. People had deposits on homes. They're absolutely devastated. The developer is saying, look, I don't know. I'm putting this back. You know this can't be allowed to happen the state has to step in this is an emergency and it comes back to my argument i've been making for a long time for a state construction company we have to guarantee people have homes we can't rely on the market which is acts rationally for itself but acts irrationally for people who need a home and the uncertain the level of uncertainty that's out there and we're going to hear it the construction industry is going to be looking for more and more tax breaks for funds the state really has to step in, I think.
0: Rory Harn. Then Claire spoke to estate agent June Doran.
5: So the ESRI is saying that house prices are overvalued by at least seven percent. You're one of the people who would value a home. Do you agree with that?
9: Well, I can I can speak for the markets As you know, I'm dealing it in Carlo, and I can I, I don't think we are at seven percent in Carlo, um, and possibly in a lot of locations outside of Dublin. Um, no, and I don't know if we're going to see literally, I agree with a lot of um, what was just said, but um, the house prices, I can't see them going down if I was a seller, I wouldn't get nervous, if I was a buyer, I wouldn't hesitate to buy unless, something I can afford, banks are stress testing, but they stress test to protect you, and um, I, I just can't see it Slow, you know. Well, have you, have, going. But
5: June, have you detected a shift in sentiment recently?
9: Um, yes, there has been a shift. All right, yeah, people are more cautious. Um, basically, they're coming. People are coming into to winter, and now with inflation on energy costs and food costs and all of that, that is making that is certainly making people stop and think and we haven't sort of got our first build for the winter yet so people are you know and they're looking more to um they're kind of shifting away from something that has a very low energy rating and looking more to the um uh, higher rate energy rated homes and there's two things in that one it's going to be cheaper to run that house but also if you have a b Plus rated house, it will get you a, a lower rate on your mortgage. So um, yes, yeah, so there is a shift, but it isn't. But it hasn't stopped. It's just a shift, and I don't know if it's going to actually. I mean, we don't have a crystal ball. Should things should things end tomorrow in in Ukraine and that crisis ends, you know, there'll be another shift, and we'll have more people looking again. So I don't think it's a shift that's going to ha- it, You know, that we're going to be looking at into the absolute long term unless the, this war goes on for. A long, long time. When you
5: look at at the cost of living now, which is leading people to assess whether now is the right time to buy, it's also, I suppose, affecting people the amount of credit that they can get from the bank. Uh, The lending rules are, are pretty tight, we know, on that. But the inflation crisis isn't going to last as long as the mortgage will. Do you think now there is a very strong case for those lending rules to be examined?
9: Uh, Yes, there is. But I think at the moment, they're just going to be cautious. Banks are going to be cautious. Builder, like I mean, and banks lending to developers, you know, for private housing are going to be cautious. One of the reasons um, a lot of builders are building to the social market for the social market and for AHBs um, would be that they have a guaranteed... Sale, and there's there's less risk. So it's the risk is higher at the moment, and banks won't lend to either a developer or to a purchaser. You know where the risk is too high. Um, are they? Do they need something? a
5: guaranteed sale? I mean, is the market not strong enough to guarantee them a sale without having to to, to know that at the very beginning of the process?
9: Well, yeah. Well, look, it's preferential. I mean, if you speak to anyone in the in the banking industry, lend who is in charge of lending to the um, builders and developers, um, it is they do not set lend to speculative uh, developers and mm-hmm. builders right now. So, if you can go to the bank and say, I have. Site, i can build 50 units and they are you know an ahb or a local authority are going to take them well they the bank will just open the door and say come on in and th- that's just as simple as that but if you're going to the private market depending where, where that is um you would want to have a lot of guaranteed sales you know you're selling off plans it's it's it's
0: it's, it's a lot of money june doran from today with claire barn On the live line, continuing the conversation about allegations of fish fixing.
10: was so on Monday last, when I first read out the statement from La An Commission Rinke Gaelke that they gave to us after we raised a number of queries, which have been raised uh, with us by um, listeners, and I said I was, I said it on Monday, I said it yesterday as well. I was, my jaw dropped when I read the statement because. Um, the CLRG their world headquarters are in Dublin by the way Uh, obviously they've 2,200 registered teachers that's schools and they branches all across Ireland the UK uh, Europe New Zealand South Africa uh, Canada, the United States, massive in the States um, and I mentioned New Zealand, Australia, right across the world um, and they're, they're probably the biggest, they're a private company the biggest uh, organisation of Irish dancing competitions and but the, the statement, and I read out the uh, paragraphs that jumped out at me Um, We have received allegations with supporting documentation of several grievous breaches of our code of conduct. Such unethical behaviour cannot and will not be tolerated. The evidence apparently dates back several years and identifies individually, allegedly offering various inducements to promote dancers to a higher than deserved placing at particular competitions. That's fixing. Uh, as I said, fetch fixing on Monday. It is believed that there are a number of teachers and schools implicated in the, in the in the allegations due to the possible far-reaching extent of such allegations and to ensure fairness, transparency and thoroughness the service of an independent former Judge of the Court of Appeal, we asked for the name of the judge on Monday, but that hasn't been forthcoming, has been engaged to uh, oversee and supervise the immediate investigation into these matters. They'll have full and open access to the resources and records of CLRG. The process will be difficult uh, and arduous, but this grossly unethical behaviour must be eliminated from our dance genre. So inter alia, in that statement there, that sentence, they're saying there is grossly unethical behaviour because it must be eliminated um, from uh, our dance genre. Now, Leila Healy has contacted us. Leila has been dancing since she was four, uh, world champion um, on one occasion. And then previously she'd come second, 13th, 7th, 6th, 3rd, 2nd. And eventually, I think it was in 2013, you you were declared world champion, Leila.
11: Yeah, that's correct. Um, I won the world in 2013 in Boston.
10: Well Donna, what's your reaction to this news?
11: Um, to be honest, I'm not shocked. Um, I am aware of, like, it. you know, carrying on throughout the years. Um, as you said, I started dancing at the age of four. Um, and obviously, when you're younger like that, you don't really understand. It's only when you have a goal and you're working hard towards something and you're seeing, you know... Results that you deserve that you're not getting, and you know hearing things that um, you just you just know it. Like favours is a big, big word that's thrown around the place in the Irish dancing world.
10: Favors. Favors, yeah. What does that mean?
11: You know, just um, you could have. You know, in in Irish dancing, there's there's, there's uh, hundreds of competitions. Yeah. You'd have you know um, a good few majors. You know, we'd have little competitions every single weekend. Um, where, you know, we travel, you know, whether it be in Ireland, yeah. um, the UK, um, and then you'd have the major ones, which would be, you know, your regionals, your nationals, the all Ireland, the world, Great Britain, etc. cetera. Um, so in, in terms of favours, you know, you'd get one, you know, you could have, um, like, as you said, there's thousands of registered teachers and judges, um so you'd ha- you could have one judge that would be maybe judging the regional say, and um, another then that is judging the the world. And mm-hmm. you know they could get in contact with each other and say, well, listen, I'll give you, you know, said place if you bump my dancer up in in this competition. And mm-hmm. um, so in that way, favours is a big, big thing in in the Irish dancing world.
10: And do judges and teachers you know when you're at a competition leila be it here or abroad, well, abroad it'd be obviously it'd be in a hotel or whatever but do judges and dance teachers do, do they do they uh, make ming- mingle socially when these competitions are ongoing do you follow oh, me
11: 100 yeah i mean um but, I, uh,
10: but I'm, I'm just thinking of say uh, an amateur dramatic competition where the judges don't go near any of the contestants, they don't want to
11: Oh, oh no, and it wouldn't necessarily like, you're not, you're not saying like the, 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 the competitors are, are are going out and you know mm-hmm. maybe partying with the adjudicators it, it may be like teachers of schools that are friends with adjudicators that are, are just perhaps like are judging on that said day um, and that's how you know favours are passed along mm-hmm. then and you know
10: well, would it would it be as innocent as, say, a judge saying to a teacher, like you've four brilliant dancers in the competition, I've got to pick one of them. Um, you know them better than I do. Which, who, who, who do you think they're? They're four. Of, I don't know how you judge an Irish dancing company, but the four of incredible ability. Which, which one should I go for? Is that not? Is that innocent? But, I mean, that's the way it should be. Um, you know, how you
11: dance on the day, and that's you know, like anything, it's like a school sk- sk- mm-hmm. exam. Your your a test is how you're graded. It's not, you know, how you've been throughout the whole year. Now, obviously, a hard-working dancer, you can tell when they're on stage the determination um, and yeah. you know how much they wanted. Their attitude towards it. You have to do it. so many sacrifices. Um it's such a disciplined sport. Like when I was growing up, like when I I stopped competing at the age of twenty, um, just okay. before I was twenty. But there were sacrifices that I couldn't, you know, go out to. You know, my friend's 18, so, or things like that. Because I had a goal, and that's the goal that I wanted to do. I wanted mm-hmm. to win the world, and no one was going to stop me. And I was doing it on my own back. And it's it's hard. You see people like that on stage have a genuine talent. You can see that they're hard working, and that's the person that you want to give it to at the end of the day. Along with obviously the, you know, how they perform on the day. Mm-hmm. But it's so disheartening to see someone that has that goal, and like they're they're literally shattered. Like. Uh, and when, when when they realise that you know it's not possible because these things are going on.
0: Well, that's Leila there. Then Fraser Fallon called Joe.
2: So I, I, I'm just the the head of media for the World Irish Dance Association, um, and I was really listening to the show yesterday, and I was just trying to trying to um, get, give across the point that not not every aspect of Irish dancing is about the glitz and the glam and the as you say the the Barbie lifestyle. Um, out there. Um, there now, by there the way,
10: are, I, 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 my no, daughter, you go on, You go. My daughter will kill me for using that phrase. I, I don't mean. I don't mean that about the young people. They're fantastic. their commitment. You heard Layla there, and you know the commitment is just. I'm just thinking of the whole beauty pageant image. Yeah. But that was just yeah. a telegraphic. You probably shouldn't use that phrase. But just the beauty pageant. Where did that come from?
2: Um I I believe it really stemmed at the, the, the late nineties. it started creeping into Irish dancing. So as, as a bit of background I joined like I started dancing in nineteen ninety six. Um and you could see through through the years um in because that's where I used to, used to dance, um, you, you could see the the wigs and the fake tan and the beauty kind of coming through. And that's what I kind of suggested it was you saw the people that were that were winning um, and people were trying to, to emulate that onto themselves and they saw the fake tan, they saw the wigs, they saw the expensive dresses and then it just became a trend that it just came through. And especially with social media becoming becoming so prominent mm-hmm. now as well, then it's just promoting that even further where people believe that they need to have the dress, they need to have the wigs, they need to have the fake tan. To even stand a chance of getting at one of the top positions.
10: And how long did you dance in CLRG competitions?
2: Um, I danced for 16 years um, in CLRG, um, and then I moved on um, elsewhere.
10: And what was the atmosphere when you were dancing? Was there any allegations of Fesh fixing?
2: Um, I think it's very similar to what, to what Leila said there. Um, I think it would echo pretty much everything she said. She's outlined it very well. Um, where it, it was it was known that favours uh, were, were happening between schools, but no one really had any evidence of that. So I, th- I think right now, seeing things that are coming out, it's, it it's it's kind of vindicating what what actually was thought to be happening. Um, and it turns out to actually be true.
10: But have you have you been at a CLRG competition where the judges don't have anything to do? With the teachers are the dancers until the day of the performance.
2: The the only one that I can really call back on um, there was a world championships. I believe it was the the, the first one in America. Um, I believe it was 2009 in Philadelphia.
3: Okay. Now
2: that that one um, was was very unique to the other world championships that happened with TRG because there were it was almost like the, the judges didn't know any of the dancers. Mm-hmm. It, it was a very unique perspective because I think they were trying to utilise more of the, the judges that were in America that hadn't seen so many, so many dancers from, from this side of the pond. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it was before social media was, was so big that they wouldn't have seen someone dancing on Instagram or TikTok or anything like that. So not knowing any of the dancers really kind of shone through in the results um, and a lot of people kind of found out where where their true place was that year.
0: Fraser Fallon. There, then Breech called Joe about her experience of
4: competing and teaching dancing. I did compete in a page many years ago. And I'm a were, very mature student right and now. And you were a teacher. I was, and I taught white Bermudians in Bermuda, okay. and I also taught set dancing in Ireland.
10: And is there favouritism?
4: Listen, Joe. I know women who nearly pull the hair off one another's heads. I know mothers who haven't spoken for a lifetime, and I can tell you, I didn't travel very far to see that.
10: Quite around us, terrible. And how did that come about? The competition. I
4: think it's all to do with yeah, favoritism, I guess, and um, not being able to accept defeat. And when we competed in a phase, Joe, we kind of we were good dancers. And I remember the two that won the medals. One was the teacher's daughter and the other lived in a very big house. But that was enough for us. And even though I was only 12, Joe, I remember yeah. it wasn't a good decision or a right decision. But anyway, we went on to secondary school and that was it. We still had a bit of dancing. I love Irish culture,
3: yeah.
4: Irish dancing. It's, it's about who we are and what we are and what we took from the past as well. And I've travelled to New York and America and lived there. And I've seen this artificiality of headgear, makeup. It's huge. It's a huge spin-off. I mean, business, huge economics around it, Joe. Oh, is there, yeah? Apart from the, the appreciation of this is Irish, OK?
10: So do you think the judging process now and the CLRG are, is tainted?
4: Well, I don't know, but that was my experience from a young age. That there's always, you know, I wouldn't know anything about that organization. I know it's there, I know it exists. I don't know about their policies and procedures.
10: Yeah, okay. They have an an ethics committee, and they, they, well, every organization has to anyway. They have childcare policies. Yeah. That's that's obligatory,
3: anyway. Yeah, Um,
4: but Joe, this business is a big business. When you go to a big venue in New York and you see the few thousand competitors and the cost of putting one of them on the stage, never mind all the mileage they put up and the money and the coaching, and the one-to-one, that's the huge industry in itself.
10: And why do you say you saw mothers tearing the hair out of each other? Why, 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 why?
4: Because theirs didn't get first, and the other got second, and mine was better than yours, and that is very true. I'm not the only one that would tell you that today. Yeah, I've seen it. It's sad, it's very sad. But it is. It's all parts of it. I mean, some. You you know. Do
10: you think you ever saw somebody win competitions that shouldn't have won them? I did.
4: Indeed. Okay.
0: Certainly. Breeze on the live line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, making the perfect scone. Two bakers were in studio to share their best tips. Anne Marie Dunn, bakery lecturer in the School of Culinary Arts and Food, and chef Shane Smith.
5: We were giving out about scones there during the ad break, weren't we? What's happened to them Mm. over the years? They've become too big, too unwieldy, too Too complicated.
12: They're like hockey (laughs) pucks. Yeah, some of them, some you know, them. you'd nearly want to duck if one came flying for you. <laughs> um, and I, I, do you know what? It's just people should really go back to basics, mm-hmm. go back to where you know, even using the glass to cut them out would be much easier than what you see. There's out. health and
13: safety, yeah. my heart is just racing there now. Yeah. You've been saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, it's almost like yeah. this, like the toy show in the studio today. There's an mm-hmm. air of excitement that I've never seen when people are talking about scones. I didn't
5: realize they had such an That's effect. It's just because you brought them in and the team are all <laughs> delighted They're We're going to have something nice (laughs) to eat after the show today. Um, Um, Tell me what the perfect scone is, though, Amory. You start off and then we'll see if Shane agrees.
12: Well, I honestly think that the perfect scone should be light enough so what you put on it makes it heavy. So your butter, your jam, your clotted cream, your fresh cream, your double cream, whatever way you like it, I think it should be only a carrier for those things. Okay. So what has happened is people have decided to put... Too much butter, too much sugar, too much everything into the scone and it's made them too heavy and stodgy and dense and I you know, it they've sort of almost been confused with the rock bun. And I think that's where the problem lies, mm-hmm. is that there has been a confusion between the scone and the
5: rock bun and they're two different products. So what's going wrong with the recipe? Is it too much butter, too I much? I think sugar? yeah,
12: I think the too much and not enough aeration. People are not using enough aeration. So they should be light, airy and fluffy. And that's down to the recipe. So how do and you the get it right recipe. then? Well, there's a couple of things. Use a good recipe and follow it. Um, I've supplied one. I think, Shane, yes. you probably have as well. We'll put those up on the um, website. Put them up. Um, the one thing I have discovered is the type of flour you use. So um, from a baker's point of view, we would always use what we'd call a medium flour. And I still do that at home. So I use half and half. So I use half strong flour, which gives you that little bit of stability to take the the actual um, gas that's created during the aeration process. Um, and I use half plain flour or cream flour. So, I use a blended flour mix. So, it's what we'd call a medium flour. Oh, no, we're now we're getting
5: complicated now <laughs> because not I only
12: complicated. have the plain <laughs> flour. If you've only the plain flour, the plain flour is fine. <laughs> but some people do make bread and they have strong flour there. If you blend it, do try it. If you'd like to play with it, try 50 50. So, mix it
5: 50 50. 50
12: 50. Enough baking powder. So, to your half kilo of flour, 500 grams of flour, you need 30 grams. Okay. That's. Five six te- teaspoons of um baking powder. an a mm. lot of recipes will only say put a teaspoon of baking powder in. It's not enough. And then the next thing is people um pin them out too thinly. They're making biscuits, not scones. They need to be two and a half in two and a half centimeters in thickness. No matter what size you're making, what diameter, that should be mm. the size. Yeah, then, I agree with that yeah. as well I think
13: definitely a part for me would be um, uh, aeration is huge but sieving your flour as well mm-hmm. it's definitely a step not to miss mm-hmm. so if you're using whatever flour if it's a blended flour or your plain flour to sieve your flour and that um, adds air into your scone as well mm-hmm. and it's about the handling of the scone another little tip I like to do is um, you can ensure that your butter is cold because you're putting in I like to put in cold butter because when that bakes in the oven if there's little pieces of butter in your mix that melts creates steam and that also helps with the rise yeah,
5: so, so it's again, just on the cold butter, it's hard then to rub that into the mixture, isn't it? It takes a bit of effort to do that. It does take a
13: little bit of effort, but again, what you're looking for is a nice, you're not looking for a smooth, really really fine texture. It's okay if your your scone mix has a little bit of texture to it and if there's little pieces of butter in there they will melt, as I said, during baking as well. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're a little bit worried about that, what you can do, and it's an extra step but you can actually grate the butter as well. If you put butter into the fridge or freezer, you can just grate your butter and you get smaller pieces and then you can mix that with your flour and it's just easier Mm -hmm. to blend that way. And you
5: agree with the blended flour advice that's very works. fancy altogether yeah. now we
13: didn't do that at in Calvin yeah. but no I'm going so, to definitely try that out yeah, but no, I get just, it because yeah. of the strong flour that makes sense Yeah.
12: So and it also helps to um, compensate for overhandling of the scone as well the other important thing is and I think that's another thing people forget to do when they're baking when you make the scone don't put them straight into the oven let them relax at least for 15 minutes just on your sideboard or while the oven is heating up. I normally make my scones, then put on my oven to preheat and then put them in. So you've cut them out at this stage? So you've cut them out, you've put them on your grease tray, you've egg washed them, just leave them on the sideboard, 15, 20 minutes and it makes a huge amount of um, difference to the volume and to the lightness because what that will do any handling of a um a dough like that will create gluten that's in the flour and it makes it tough mm-hmm. so if you let that gluten relax it's almost like an elastic you let it relax and then when it goes into the oven the um, baking powder when it's doing its work it'll let it rise gently it'll give you much better volume and um, that adds to the lightness as well. T- what temperature
5: so. is your, your oven at?
12: A hot oven I would always preheat Bakers always say this A hot yes.
13: oven This hot is what I say 180, 160 fan yeah. Is generally my rule of thumb Yeah, yeah. Well For I'm
12: much hotter than that okay. So I'm I'm <laughs> Yeah well, That
13: well, sounds you can, you, That sounds really good
12: um, So <laughs> <laughs> My oven is much hotter than that As well We can confirm
13: that in studio as well That's
12: <laughs> So I would always preheat to, to, to 210 And turn back to 200 But a shorter baking time So only 15 yeah. to 16 minutes
0: Anne-Marie Dunn and Shane Smith from "Today with Claire Byrne". And on today with Claire Barron, a rise in COVID cases in the country.
5: Now, yesterday, the Chief Medical Officer, Professor Breda Smith, confirmed there are currently 405 people in hospital here with COVID. That's a jump of 74% in the last three weeks. Professor Smith urged people to get vaccinated as soon as they are eligible to protect themselves. So how worried should we be by this jump? What's the best advice when dealing with COVID now? I'm joined by Dr Dennis McCauley, a Donegal GP and Chairperson of the GP sub- Committee at the Irish Medical Organisation. Good morning to you, Dennis. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank, uh, thank you, Claire. Are
5: you seeing much COVID around?
3: We're seeing a lot of um, respiratory illness. You know, it's probably a com- combination of the common cold, RSV—that's uh, 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 respiratory syncytial virus—and and COVID. I think, it's, I think it was expected that there was going to be an increase at this time of year. Um, now, the flu, we haven't seen, There's probably are cases of flu, but there's not obvious cases of flu to add to the mix as well. So there's a whole maelstrom of, 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 of respiratory Ill- illness. And I suppose the one bit of advice we tell everybody is if you are sick, particularly with the temperature, the one thing we would ask you to do is just stay at, stay at home and don't go to work for 48 hours afterwards. Don't worry whether it's, to a certain extent, it doesn't matter if it's the respiratory illness or S, be flu or covid just stay at stay at home you don't need a test testing is only for people who we feel are at risk from getting very sick with with covid would be people over 55 people with a high risk medical issue so the important thing is if you're sick stay at home
0: dr dennis mccauley from today with claire Byrne. and that's it for playback daily so mind yourself till next time